0: Hello, I'm Gavin Kramer, a senior associate at Collier Bristow, specialising in insolvency. Uh, This is the second in our series of podcasts about antecedent transaction claims in insolvency proceedings. And I'm here today with my colleague,
1: Peter Pratt. Hi, everyone, and thanks, Gavin. Yes, my name is Peter Pratt, and I'm also a senior associate in our insolvency
0: team. In this podcast, we're going to be discussing two types of antecedent transaction claim, transactions that an undervalue claims, which are commonly referred to as TUV claims, and preference claims. These are claims which can be brought by a liquidator or administrator, in the case of corporate insolvencies, or by a trustee in bankruptcy where an individual has been made bankrupt. In this podcast, Peter and I collectively refer to liquidators, administrators and trustees in bankruptcy, all of whom have to be licensed insolvency practitioners as office holders. These claims are brought under the Insolvency Act 1986. If prior to the liquidation, administration or bankruptcy, a company or person has benefited from a TUV or a creditor has received a payment or sum. Other benefit which prefers them, the office holder can apply to court for an order compelling that person or company to return what they received or to make a compensatory payment. In the case of liquidations or administrations where a company has entered into the TUV, the relevant section is section 238 of the Insolvency Act. In the case of bankruptcies where an individual has entered into a TUV, it's section 338 of the Act. Peter, to start us off, how would you define a transaction as an undervalue? It is where an insolvent company or bankrupt individual
1: has made a gift or entered into a transaction where an asset is transferred for significantly less than it's worth. For example, where, say, an individual before becoming bankrupt owned a £50,000 car but sold it to a friend for £5,000, therefore at an undervalue, the office holder can therefore make a claim against the recipient for the £45,000 difference.
0: What is very important to bear in mind when one is analysing these types of claims is that the office holder can only pursue TUVs if they occurred during what the Act terms the relevant time. What constitutes the relevant time differs in the case of corporate insolvency claims and bankruptcy claims. Interestingly, a trustee in bankruptcy can, in certain certain circumstances, go much further back in time than a liquidator or administrator. Peter, what what do you think are, are the key differences here between TUV claims in a corporate insolvency and TUV claims where an individual has been made bankrupt?
1: An administrator or liquidator may apply to the court for an order avoiding any transaction made at an undervalue in the two years prior to the administration or liquidation. You count back from the date when the resolution to wind-up was passed in the case of a voluntary liquidation and from the date when the winding-up petition was presented in the case of a compulsory liquidation. In respect of bankruptcy, the trustee in bankruptcy can go back five years, counting back from the date when the bankruptcy petition was presented or if the individual has made himself bankrupt from the date the bankruptcy application was made the individual or liquidator can only bring a transfer at an undervalued claim if the company was insolvent at the time of the transaction or became insolvent as a result. In the case of bankruptcy, the trustee can bring a transfer at an undervalued claim in respect of transactions entered into less than two years before the presentation of the petition or making of the bankruptcy application, whether or not the individual was insolvent at the time. If, however, the transaction occurred between two and five years before presentation of the petition or the making of the bankruptcy application, the trustee will have to show that the individual was insolvent at the time of the transaction or became insolvent as a result. However, if the transaction is with a connected person, there is a presumption that the company or individual was insolvent at the relevant
0: time, unless it can be shown otherwise. One thing that I do find interesting is that there is a potential defense in the case of TUVs by companies. So that if a company enters into a TUV and the office holder wants to challenge that TUV, there's a special defense that's available, but that defense is not available in the case of individuals who've entered into a TUV where the trustee wants to pursue the transaction. Yes. This
1: is set out in section 238.5 of the Insolvency Act. This is where the court is satisfied that the company entered into the transaction in good faith and for the purposes of carrying on its business. And that at the time it did so, there was reasonable grounds for believing that the transaction would benefit the company. In respect of an individual, there is no equivalent defense.
0: Right. Well, we've now looked at TUV or transactional demand value claims uh, and I'm now going to sort of briefly introduce the other type of claim that we're covering in today's podcast and these are preference claims. The relevant sections are two three nine of section 239 of the Insolvency Act where the preference has been given by a company which has subsequently gone into liquidation or administration and section 340 of the Act where the preference is given by an individual who has subsequently been made bankrupt. As well as a creditor, a guarantor or surety of the company or individual's debts can also be preferred and therefore the subject of a preference claim. This is reflected in the statutory definition of a preference in both sections of the Act, which I think are are worth reading out in full. Section 239 uh, says that a company gives a preference to a person if the company does anything or suffers anything to be done which in either case has the effect of putting that person into a position which, in the event of the company going into insolvent liquidation, will be better than the position that he would have been in if that thing had not been done. In the case of an individual giving a preference, the statutory test is that the individual does anything or suffers anything to be done, which in either case has the effect of putting that person into a position which, in the event of the individual's bankruptcy, will be better than the position he would have been in if that thing had not been done. I think preference is a concept which is frequently misunderstood. In my experience, clients often think that any payment made to creditors when a company or an individual is insolvent is, therefore, automatically a preference, but that, of course, is not the case. Do, do you have any sort of thoughts on that, Peter?
1: Yes, this is often misunderstood. But for a transaction to constitute a preference, the company or individual must have been influenced in deciding to give the preference by a desire to prefer the other party, which, as we've already explained, means a desire to put them in a better position than they would have been otherwise in the event of the company going into insolvent liquidation or the individual being made bankrupt.
0: Yes, I think that's. An important point to bear in mind, if a company or an individual pays a creditor who's threatening legal action, if the debt isn't paid, that is not a preference because they've been given an ultimatum. There's no desire to prefer or a wish to put the uh, creditor in a better position. The company or individual has been told, if you don't pay us, we're going to litigate, we're going to take you to court. And if that's the reason why the payment is made, there's no desire to prefer and it's not a preference. I would also mention that a company is presumed to have had a desire to prefer the creditor or guarantor who's benefited from the preference, where the recipient is connected to the company unless the reason for their connection is that they're an employee. And similarly, in the case of bankrupts, there's a matching presumption that if the creditor or guarantor who's being preferred is an associate of the bankrupt, excluding, again, people who are employees of the bankrupt, then again, it's assumed that there was a desire to prefer on the part of the individual later made bankrupt when they gave the preference. Connected and associate are both terms defined in the Insolvency Act, although it can sometimes be quite difficult to pin down if someone is connected or an associate under the definition contained in the the legislation. This presumption can be rebutted if there is evidence to show there was
1: no desire to prefer, but it shifts the burden of proof from the officeholder who is
0: bringing the claim to the creditor or guarantor who is defending it. Just as with TUVs, the Insolvency Act only permits officeholders to pursue preference claims if they occur during what is termed the relevant time. Peter, I always find this To be quite a tricky area, what what do you think are the key provisions for determining whether a preference has occurred during the relevant time, both for corporate insolvencies and bankruptcies? The key
1: provisions are set out in section 240 and 341 of the Insolvency Act. The preference must have been given by the company no more than six months before its administration or liquidation. Again, you count back from the date when the resolution to wind up was passed in the case of a voluntary liquidation, and from the date that the winding up petition was presented in the case of a compulsory liquidation, or for an individual no more than six months before the bankruptcy petition was presented or the bankruptcy application made. The period increases to two years if the person preferred is connected to the company, otherwise than by reason of being its employee, or is an associate of the individual, again, otherwise than by reason of it being his employee. A further condition is that the company or individual must have been insolvent when the preference was given to have become insolvent as a result.
0: Thank you, Peter. I hope our discussion has helped shed some light on this complex area of insolvency law. If you have any follow-up questions from today's podcast, do feel free to email Peter or me, and for more information you can also visit the Insolvency page on Collier Bristow's website.
1: Thank you Gavin. In the next and final podcast in this series, we will be looking at transactions to in creditors and void transactions made after the commencement of winding up or bankruptcy proceedings. Thank you very much for joining us today.